Merry Christmas. I agree with Richie, no better place to be and spend Christmas morning than with you all. I can't express how thankful I am for this church and for uh, just the privilege to, uh, to be here with you and to open God's word. Uh, it's like preparing a sermon for Christmas morning is like wrapping a present for your kids and, you know, ah, just excited to give it to them. And so I hope you'll receive it that way. <laughs> uh, if you would, take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah chapter 11. This passage is uh, kind of our namesake here. We uh, are Emmanuel Bible Church, and so we hope to study this great text that is the passage where we get our name from. Isaiah chapter 7 in this great prophecy. You're familiar with verse 14, of course, which let me just read that as we begin. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. At Christmas time, there's often a, uh, a number of uh, people saying things uh, of concern about ha- taking Christ out of Christmas and uh, removing Christ. I remember years ago, I wrote an email to uh, some of the parents at the church where I was serving in South Atlanta, and I ended it uh, by saying, or I used uh, the word Xmas in my, uh, in my remarks in the email, and one of the, the mothers emailed me back and said, hey, why'd you, why'd you do Xmas? You're, you're, you're crossing Christ out of Christmas. And uh, the pastor, you know, <laughs> taking Christ out of Christmas. And I remember uh, laughing at that because um, actually the, the Xmas is not taking Christ out of Christmas. It's actually the first letter uh, in the Greek uh, word for Christ. Christos. It looks like an X. It's a chi. And so it's, it's really just abbreviating it, right? So it's like saying Seamus, you know, uh, Christmas. And so don't worry, I wasn't taking Christ out of Christmas. Uh, but uh, you'd be fascinated to know that this passage that is, maybe you put on a Christmas card this year, Isaiah 7:14, is one of those texts where uh, critics have sought to take Christ out of Isaiah 7:14, a classic Christmas text. And you say, well, how do they do that? Well, there's been much ink spilled on this passage in many different areas of this passage, but especially focus on verse 14 and this word virgin. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. And some have said, oh, well, this doesn't actually refer to a virgin. The word that Isaiah used, it really just refers to a young woman. It's just saying a young woman will give birth, which, you know, when you think about a sign that's as high as heaven or low as Sheol, you know, that, that is offered, you think, well, that's pretty ordinary, right? A young woman's, you know, that happens all the time. I mean, it's great, you know, especially if it's your kid, but uh, that's pretty normal. Not a virgin birth, though. that is, a virgin conception, that is incredible. And, and so they'll say, oh, well, it really should, in fact, even the RSV translates it, behold, the young woman shall conceive. Now, everyone agrees, Matthew uh, believed that this passage was a fulfillment of Jesus and his virgin conception through Mary and the Holy Spirit. And so everyone's like, yeah, Matthew believed that. But 
you know, Isaiah, he, he wasn't really talking about that. He was talking about something else, and Isaiah's kind of reading into that, or he's kind of giving a fuller meaning, a, a deeper meaning that Isaiah didn't really understand. And, uh, and Isaiah wasn't really talking about the Messiah. He was just talking about someone in Ahaz's day, and he was just speaking to that situation. But uh, Matthew kind of got creative and, and applied it to the Messiah in some way in some fancy, uh, you know, hermeneutics, uh, creative hermeneutics, you might say. But uh, there have been many things said about this passage that have sought to distance it from a truly messianic view. Uh, some have said, well, it doesn't refer at all to the Messiah, just someone in Isaiah's day, whether it's uh, Isaiah's son, Shir Jashub, or his son in chapter 8, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, which try and say that 10 times fast uh, for your kids, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, you know, uh, you might go crazy. Uh, but they, they look to all these, they say, oh, maybe it's Hezekiah, maybe it's some unknown woman that Isaiah just didn't mention, that he just said, oh, it's gonna happen, and then he didn't record its fulfillment. All these ways to take the plain meaning out of the text. Now, some have even gotten creative and say, well, okay, maybe there's like a double fulfillment kind of thing happening where Isaiah didn't mean to talk about the Messiah, but, but it was kind of like pointing forward to the Messiah in some mysterious way. I don't think any of those really fit what Isaiah is really saying. And I think uh, the best way to take this is to see this as directly referring to the Messiah. Isaiah's prophesying 700 years before the Messiah. And he's predicting one who would come, who would be God with us, and would be conceived by a virgin. This is truly an incredible miracle in this passage. But though it is a passage we often use on Christmas cards and we're familiar with, I think most of us are probably less familiar with the rest of the chapter, with the whole of the chapter. But I want to say, this chapter is so exciting. There is so much in here that if you can grasp the verses that are surrounding Isaiah 7:14, it'll give you such a greater appreciation for this verse, seeing it laid in its context. It's like having a diamond placed in the ring so that you can wear around. And so I want to take this diamond of Isaiah 7:14 and put it into its setting, into its context, and let's look at it together and see all that God has for us here. And so you might say, well, what is Isaiah chapter 7 really about? This verse comes out of it, but what is it about? And it's really about trust. It's about faith in Yahweh's word. That is what it's about. Let me read the chapter for us as we begin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us con conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. 
For the hand of Syria is Damascus. For the head of Syria is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, as high, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put Yahweh to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the, hand whose two, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, Yahweh will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This is the word of the Lord. Here's the issue, summarized well by one writer. He said, Jesus was certainly born of a virgin, as Matthew states. However, did Isaiah intend for that idea originally? And we want to show that yes, he did, both in the larger context and in the immediate context of this verse. What we also learn in this passage, which is fascinating, is that the first uh, time this prophecy is given in this context, it's bad news. The prophecy of Emmanuel is bad news for Ahaz. And so we have to ask the question for you this morning, as you think about this passage, as we walk through it, is the message of Emmanuel good news or bad news for you? Is Christmas good news for you or is it bad news for you? And the answer to that question is how you respond to Emmanuel. Do you believe in, do you trust in Emmanuel and the promise of Emmanuel? And that determines whether he is good news for you or bad news. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before the birth of the Messiah. And he writes in this context of uh, the king of Ahaz, who is uh, the king over 
King, king Ahaz, who was king over Judah in the southern kingdom. Now, thankfully, last week, we had some time to like review some of these things. Uh, Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south, and, and we looked at some of those things. And so we, we pick up some years later, about 100 years after the story of Joash, baby Joash, and, uh, uh, and Athaliah, and that attempt to snuff out the Davidic line. And here we have another king of, uh, of Judah. As we look at this passage, there are a number of lessons on trust that we want to look at in order that we might fully embrace the hope of Christmas. Lessons on trust in order that we might fully embrace the hope of Christmas. The first lesson is the call to trust. The call to trust. Verses 1 to 8. Uh, first, we see a crisis here that calls for faith. In verses 1 to 3, the stakes are high once again. The Davidic dynasty is yet again in peril of being destroyed. Two nations are coming against Ahaz, the king of Judah. Two kings in the north. So you have uh, Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, the northern kingdom. And then you have uh, Syria, which is uh, even north uh, east of that. And these two kings have come into an alliance and they've tried to pull in Ahaz to join them in this alliance against Assyria, this greater enemy. But Ahaz has refused that, and so they have now come against him, and they are at his border seeking to destroy him and set up a puppet king in his place. Now, it's kind of confusing at first because there's all these different names uh, and, and capitals. So let me just break it down a little bit for you. You have Ephraim, which is also another name for Israel, okay? And the capital of Israel, Ephraim, is Samaria, okay? And the king there at this time is Pekka, all right. Uh, then the other nation is Syria, which is also known as Aram. So don't get confused, Syrian Aram. And their capital is Damascus, and their king is Rezin, okay? So you just got all that there. And then you have Ahaz in the south. I've got to do some of this setup for you. So they're on the border, seeking to destroy the king uh, and, and, and remove him. And as a result, Ahaz is full of fear. It, it uses this picture of him shaking in uh, like a tree in the wind. And, and he's like that, and the people become like that as they follow their king. They are terrified. So what does God do? He sends Isaiah, the prophet, to Ahaz. There's three things you need to see that are significant in Isaiah's approach to Ahaz. Notice who is with him. Notice where they are. And notice what he says. First, notice who is with him. Who is with Isaiah? It, it was bring your child to work day. And so Isaiah brought his son, Shear, Jeshuv. And his name means a remnant will return. Now that's kind of an ominous message to bring, a sign message. You're, you're communicating something, but you have a, a, it's like a show and tell day for Isaiah. Hey, here's my son. His name is Shear Jeshuv. It means a remnant will return, Judah. It means that this is bad news, but also good news. It is like judgment and hope wrapped into one. Because a remnant returning means they left. It means they went into exile. That's not good news. But good news, a remnant will return. God will not cancel out his promises to the Davidic line. There will be a remnant, though it be small, that will return. And so he's giving him assurance here, even through this son that's with him. The Davidic line will remain. Now notice also where Ahaz is when Isaiah meets him. It says that he's at the end of the conduit of the upper pool to the highway of the fuller's field. Now, why would this location be significant? 
Well, it had to do with their water supply. from the Gihon Spring, if you're in battle and you're going to get besieged, it's very significant, very important that you have a water supply to survive an attack. And so here's King Ahaz at this place. Uh, but there's something else going on here. What's really interesting is in chapter, let me just break down Isaiah for you for a second. One to six, chapters one to six is really the sinfulness of mankind. And then seven to 12, you have the solution for mankind, and it's Emmanuel. It's this, this child who's going to be born, and he's going to rule and reign. And, and then you have 13 to really 39 uh, as another section. But if we were to take seven to 39 together, the real message is, who will you trust? Who will you trust? And you have in the first part, seven to 12, Ahaz, In the middle, you have all these Gentiles and their kingdoms. And then at the very end, in 36 to 39, you have another king of Judah, Hezekiah. And in Ahaz, you have, trust the Lord, Ahaz, and he fails. He fails the test. Then you have in the middle, all these chapters that speak about these Gentile nations and God's judgment coming upon them because they they go after idols. They don't worship the true God. And then in the end, it's almost like you have an exam retake day. And you have Hezekiah gets another chance to, tr- to, to, te- to, uh, to trust the Lord in the midst of an enemy invader on their border, Assyria. And in chapter 36 to 39, you see Hezekiah in that great passage where he trusts the Lord. And it's like he passes the test and God delivers them. The angel of Yahweh delivers them. Now, can you guess where Hezekiah was as he was contemplating trusting the Lord? The exact same place. Isaiah 36, verse 2. Isaiah 36, verse 2 says, And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Same place. It's like test, retake. Same place. Same situation. Another king of Judah. Will you trust in Yahweh? Or will you seek salvation from man? Hezekiah, he trusts Yahweh. Ahaz, he fails in that way. So this is significant. This is significant. Even the place. Now what is it that he says? What does he says to him? What is the content that he gives to Ahaz to place his trust in? Well, we see this in verses four to nine. Look at verse four. And Yahweh said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit or sorry, that's verse three, verse four. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Isaiah brings God's word. Hey, say, don't be afraid of these two kings, Ahaz. They're like the end of a fire. They're like those smoldering uh, pieces in the fire that you could just put your foot on and stamp out. They are about to go out. Don't you be afraid of them. Don't you worry. This is the word that Ahaz needs to trust. And he gives him content to trust. He gives him a promise. And that is true for us as well, that God gives us content. He gives us promises and truth to latch onto for our faith. Why are you fearful, Ahaz, concerning these current events? Why are you shaking in fear? In verses five to seven, the plan of these two kings is, is described. What they want to do, they want to take a puppet king, Tabil, and place him in the place of Ahaz, and thus effectively ridding Judah of the, the line of David. 
Verse five says, because Syria with Ephraim, so here's why you shouldn't be afraid, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramali has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says Lord Yahweh, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. I mean, there is a great word. Hey, listen, Ahaz, they are not going to come. They will not defeat you. Trust the word. And it's interesting because Isaiah's word is God's word. They're one and the same. And God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah. Now, did Isaiah need this direct, or did Ahaz need this direct word? I don't think he did. I think he should have just simply known that because he's of the house of David, there is no way this line can pass away. I mean, didn't he know about the lady who saved Christmas? Didn't he know about Jehoshaphat? I mean, this is 100 years before him. And so surely he knew about baby Joash and how close the line of David was to being cut off and how God preserved the line nevertheless. Oh, he knew that. And so he should have known that this promise in, a, in 2 Samuel seven fourteen that, that God would always have one to sit on the throne of David, that it would never go away. Should have known the security of the Davidic promise. But... God gives him a word nevertheless in addition to that. Then in verses eight to nine, God tells Ahaz the future of Aram and Ephraim. Verse eight, for the head of Syria is Damascus. So he's telling him the capital of it. You know, head of Syria, the capital of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. So it's like the head of this country is this capital and the head of this capital is this king. Okay, that's what he's saying. And then within 65 years, Ephraim, Israel, will be shattered from being a people. They're gonna be gone. And this is what's fulfilled is they're taken into captivity. They're decimated and they're taken into captivity in 722 BC by the Assyrians. Then verse nine says, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And so he gives them this, this promise. They'll be gone. There's no reason for fear here. And then the last part of verse nine if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He tells him not to be afraid, but to put his trust in Yahweh and his word. And there's kind of a play on words here. One writer tries to draw it out and says, verse nine does not say, if you don't believe, my word will fall. But it says, if you do not believe, you will fall while my word will stand. So there's this, he's saying, trust me and you will be firm. If you don't, you won't be firm at all, but my word will go forth and be fulfilled. God's promise will not change, but will Ahaz trust the promise? That's the question. God's plans come to pass whether you believe it or not. But if you remain firm in your faith in God, then there is security there. There is the enjoyment of the fulfillment are you ever afraid of current events, things going on? Are you ever afraid of things that turn out to never have been a problem or never to come to pass? You know, you, you fear that, that which never will come to pass. That's exactly what Ahaz is doing. He's all afraid. He's shaking in the wind because of something that will never happen. Not only does he have the old promise and the old uh, faithfulness of God in past events, but the present promise of God that... This will not happen, and yet he's still fearful. And yet, God is so 
committed to helping Ahaz to believe that he condescends to give him an offer, an incredible offer for a sign. And so we see, you saw the call to faith, call, call to trust in these first eight verses, and then at verse nine verses, and then we see the condescension to trust in verses 10 to 13. He condescends to give him an offer, this great offer of a sign. Look at verse 10. This is the condescension to trust. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. This is an incredible offer. I mean, it's like heaven and earth. It, just whatever you want to ask. I mean, think about all the past miracles God had done that he could rely on think, wow, if God could do that, then maybe I could ask for this. And, I mean, you, you really, this is truly an incredible offer. He's condescending, God is, to offer a sign for Ahaz of his sure word. Whatever you want to help your faith, Ahaz. I'll move heaven and earth to motivate your faith. Yet, Ahaz responds in a statement of false humility. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put Yahweh to the test. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. No, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Yeah, but it's different if God tells you, I'll give you a sign and says, whatever you want. But he has this false piety. He's saying, oh no, I, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to put God to the test. I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna ask for anything. Isn't this often the case with unbelief? It's kind of shrouded in some pious rejection. It's not always a full out, full blown no. It's kind of like, well, I don't know. Now, we get a little bit of a hint, a clue in 2 Kings 16 of the historical background here and what's really going on in the background for Ahaz. In 2 Kings 16, verses 7 and 8, we read this. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Wow. I'm your servant. I'm your son. Those are terms for the Messiah. <laughs> the servant. The, the son. And he's saying, I'm your servant, king of Assyria. I'm your son. Whatever you want. Here's all the treasures of the, uh, of the temple. Have it. Please protect us. He's saying, really Ahaz has accepted the king of Assyria into his heart. <laughs> That's what he's done. He's already reached out to him for help. And so when Isaiah comes and he's saying, the Lord will offer you any sign, he's already, he's already got stock in Assyria. And so he doesn't want to uh, bet against that. His trust is already in Assyria. Ahaz has sought salvation by works instead of salvation by faith alone. Now, unbelief is deeply rooted Think about Jesus' many signs that he performed, the many miracles he did, and yet those signs did not have the power in and of themselves to convert a person, to, to grant them faith. They pointed to who Jesus was, but there were many who saw incredible signs that Jesus did and yet still refused to believe. This is yet another reminder for us that signs are not ultimately what bring about saving faith. 
The stubbornness of unbelief will resist the greatest of signs that support the scriptures because people do not want to submit to their sovereign. And that is the case certainly here with Ahaz. And so since Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, what will God do? Well, God is going to give a sign, but not something that Ahaz will enjoy the benefits of. God does not reward salvation by works. Since Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, God will still give him one, but he won't enjoy its benefits. The sign Yahweh gives is a condemnation for Ahaz. It's a condemnation upon Ahaz, not a comfort for him. Todd Bolin writes this. He says, Ahaz was granted his wish. He would be saved by the object of his faith, Assyria. You want to have Assyria as the object of your faith, your security, your dependence? They're going to save you, save you. Look at verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? It's actually a change that takes place here. Verse 13 shifts away from Ahaz in particular to the house of David more generally. And Ahaz really represents the attitude of the people as well. And so there's kind of a condemnation on the the house of David as a whole because they as well have followed Ahaz in this, this way of thinking. They've wearied God. And notice even Isaiah says, my God. I mean, there's a distancing going on here. This is, you've wearied my God. The implication, he's not your God. Your God is Assyria. Also, there's a change that takes place here from the you singular to you plural. Y'all. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Therefore, verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for y'all to weary men, that y'all weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give y'all a sign. That's what it is. I mean, Judah was in the south, so, you know, that's how they talk. Uh, it's hard to see that in English, but that's what's going on. There's a shift subtly taking place here. The sign isn't directly for Ahaz. It's for, more generally, the house of David. And so Christmas is bad news for Ahaz. We'll see why in a minute. In part, though, because of Ahaz's unbelief, there will be condemnation for him. They will be wiped out. One writer said this, instead of a sign offered, there will be a sign imposed. And so here we see the condescension to trust as God gives even more Past promises, Ahaz would have known about the promise to, to, to David and the Davidic covenant, the example of Joash. He's got the present word of God of what's going to happen to these kings. And even God offers this incredible sign, and yet still he remains obstinate in his unbelief. And so here then is this great sign that's given in that context. And we'll call this the Christ to trust. The Christ to trust. In verses 14 to 17, this is the focal point of the passage. What is this great sign that Yahweh will give for the house of Judah? It is Emmanuel, the Emmanuel child. There's a number of truths revealed about Emmanuel in these verses. Uh, notice a few things. This is like a mini sermon within a sermon. <laughs> Emmanuel's conception. Notice that first. We see about Emmanuel's conception in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Now, therefore, is actually a way that Isaiah tends to speak of judgment. It's like he's saying, all this, is ha- all this uh, has happened, therefore, and there's like usually a word of judgment. So that's another indication for us that this is not a good news for, good news message for Ahaz, but bad news. And the Lord himself will do this. It shows the, the miraculous nature of this. And he will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So the word virgin, we mentioned before. It's the word Alma in Hebrew. And I only mention that because this is where all the debate rests. And uh, some have said, well, Alma really refers to a young girl uh, of marriable age. A better word for Isaiah would have been Bethula. And that word, it has more of an idea of, of virginity than, than Alma does. But actually, when you, when you study it out, you find that Bethula requires another phrase that's, that uh, modifies it. So in and of itself, that word doesn't, mean virgin every time, and we have examples where it clearly doesn't. But Alma, we don't really have any examples that refer to anyone other than a young woman who is not yet married, and the assumption is, therefore she is a virgin. And so that's what this word means. A young woman who has not had intimate relations with a man. Much ink has been spilled, uh, but, but there's great encouragement for us as well, because Matthew, when he quotes this, he uses the Greek word parthenos, which is clearly about a virgin. And when they translated the Old Testament into Greek 200 years around before Jesus was even born, they used that word. They used a very clear word because they understood this word means virgin, not just a young woman in general, uh, whether she's married or not. So clearly, this sets it up as someone who has to fulfill this, who is miraculous. This is a virgin conception. Sometimes we say virgin birth, but really more accurately, it's a virgin conception. And this, this pr- protects the the eternal son as he takes on flesh from inheriting the guilt of Adam imputed to him so that he can uh, come into this world sinless and live a perfect life, a righteous life, earning the obedience that you need to stand before a holy God and then dying on the cross to purchase and pay for the sins of those who would believe. And so then he can cancel out your debt of sin and credit you with his earned righteousness of obedience in his life as the second Adam. That is part of the good news that Christmas signifies. Also, just think, what? (laughs) This is not that very significant. You know, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A lady's gonna give birth. Just a young lady. She's just gonna give birth, you know. And I'm not even gonna mention it. You know, Isaiah. No, that just does not make any sense at all. This is something truly incredible. Also, this phrase, be with child and bear a son, is used in a number of other places in the Old Testament for significant births. Abner Chow says about the significance of this. He says, the significance of the virgin birth seems to be an argument of lesser to greater. A virgin birth exceeds any other miraculous births. Consequently, the virgin-born son is the most significant individual in redemptive history. He surpasses Isaac, Moses, Samson, or Samuel. In the context of Isaiah 7.14, the birth of this ultimate individual secures the Davidic dynasty and the restoration of a remnant. He will be born in exile to end it. It's a great statement. He'll be born in exile to end it. So this is Emmanuel's conception. We also see Emmanuel's condescension and comfort. His name will be Emmanuel. You shall call his name Emmanuel. This means God with us. What a condescension for God to take on flesh and dwell among us so that we might see his glory 
I mean, Isaiah 6, the chapter just before this, that great passage, holy, holy, holy. I mean, how can sinful man come into the presence of a holy God? Isaiah goes, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't, I dwell among a people of unclean lips and I've seen the Lord. And there's this cleansing that takes place. And then in chapter seven, we learn of this Emmanuel child and he is God with us. He brings the presence of God to us. It's such a great condescension for God to do this. John 1, 14, the eternal word, looking at bringing in verse one, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this child will be the presence of God with man. Later in Isaiah 9, 6, two chapters later, we read, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And one of his names is Mighty God. The Old Testament clearly portrayed the Messiah as God as Yahweh. There's a plurality, even in the Old Testament, in the triune God. Yet, not only is this a great condescension, but it's a great comfort. And the concept of God's presence with his people is one of the major themes of the Bible, that God is present with us. What a great comfort that is, dear Christian. You know this. Oh, God is with me. He is near me. Matthew's gospel is bracketed with that promise. Matthew 1, 23, Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 28, 20, I will be with you always to the end of the age. It's Matthew's way of saying, God has come to be with us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. He is God and he is man. And he brings the presence of God. He brings the comfort of God to all believers. Now think of that sweet, sweet psalm that we love at every season in life, especially those that are most difficult. And I, Psalm 23, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You're with me. Here's how God can be with us, even in our sinfulness, because God with us, because Emmanuel has come. We see also not only the conception of Emmanuel, the condescension and comfort of Emmanuel, we also see the circumstances of Emmanuel, when he will be born. Look at verse 15. This is where people go crazy in the commentaries and everything, and they get all weird and, and wonky. It says in verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, curds and honey, you know, I don't know if that's your diet, you know, uh, yogurt, you know, Greek yogurt, basically. Uh, you might be tempted to think curds and honey, like, oh, wow, this is like a great meal. You know, this is like prosperity, like, oh, the land of milk and honey, okay. Uh, but that's the uncultivated land. It, it, curds and honey is not the food of royalty. It's not steak and shrimp. Curds and honey is rice and beans. It is the, the, the meal, the diet of subsistence. It means the land has been decimated and there's really nothing left. You're scrounging around and what you have to eat is curds and honey. That's what you have. And so that speaks a lot to the context in which the Messiah is born. How do I know that? How, how do I know that that's what that means? Well, look at verse 22, later in the chapter. And because, uh, verse 21, in that day, this is speaking about that, that day of destruction of the land. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. They're left in the land because the land has been decimated. You can't even live in the land anymore. But those who do, they're on this subsistence diet. And that's what this means about his circumstances. It means that the Emmanuel child will be born in times of poverty and devastation. 
unlike the other kings of Israel who lived in the palace and enjoyed rich fare, this one, this king, will not. He will live in obscurity. He will live in poverty. One writer said the boy will eat curds and honey because the land will be forsaken. Israel and Judah's disobedience would lead to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, which would be followed by the Media Persia rule over Israel, uh, over Greece, and then Rome, in which Jesus is born in the Roman Empire. Messiah would then be born during a time of oppression by the Romans. This is certainly true of Jesus, born in Bethlehem, raised in a backwater town of Nazareth, born in poverty, not in the palace. And like it was said earlier, he will be born into exile to bring his people out of exile. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. We see then in this Emmanuel's character, his character. In the middle of verse 15, it says, He knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, just briefly here, this is, there's a translation issue that I think will help you if we resolve it. Um, in the, in the second part of, in verse 15, ESV has, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. And it makes you, it makes you think, okay, uh, there's some time element here. And so this has to happen within Ahaz's day. That's, that's a wrong way to view this. Uh, when is not quite right. Uh, KJV, uh, NKJV, and the new translation, the LSB, actually get this, I think, better. Uh, LSB translates it this way. He will eat curds and honey that, or in order that, he will know to refuse evil and choose good. The idea is not a time element, but a purpose or result element. Commenting on the significance of this, Delroff Davis, he writes this, he says, it seems to imply that the child will eat the diet of a ravished land and that that will in some way shape and or reinforce his godly character. And it says that he will refuse the evil and choose the good. Some want to look at this and say, oh, it's like a young child and he's learning what good and evil are. But that's not quite right because the text is saying he is determined. He has a determination to refuse evil and choose good. This is stronger language than just a knowledge of good and evil. He is firmly refusing and rejecting evil and consciously choosing good. This speaks to the righteousness of the Emmanuel child. And one writer said, knowing good and evil always refers in the Old Testament to the moral discernment associated with adults. And so this is an adult person. In these verses, we see not only the virgin conception, but the virtuous character of the Messiah. And notice the, the connection to other passages. Deuteronomy 8.3 said, And he humbled you, Israel, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. So there's this kind of circumstantial uh, position that God puts them in in order to produce in them a certain character. Hebrews 5.8 as well says about the Messiah, about Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so it's through this time of being in a ravished land that, that it has an effect upon him that will cause him to pursue what is righteous and good. While most of Israel's kings were all bad and Judah, this child will refuse evil and choose good. This is the kind of child and king that we need. Isaiah 11, a couple chapters later, will describe his belt as a belt of righteousness. This is the character of the Christmas child. 
The virgin conception ensures the Messiah will not inherit the guilt of Adam, and the virtuous character of Messiah will, uh, ensures that he will earn the righteousness that we need. And now it's important to understand how verses 16 and 17 fit with this. So he will eat curds and honey, this, this subsistence diet, in order that he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. And then verse 16 really explains, well, why is this the case? Because remember, Ahaz is living in a time of relative prosperity. The land is not at a subsistence level. They're eating steak and shrimp, so to speak. You know, they don't eat shrimp. Okay, uh, bad, bad illustration. Uh, but, uh, but, the, but the point is, is, they're not in this time yet. And so, okay, this child, this Emmanuel child is born and he's eating this strange diet. Uh, why is that the case? And that's what verses 16 and 17 seek to answer. It, it uses kind of a, a vanilla term, for. Uh, there's a, a translation in the Net Bible that tries to draw this out a little bit more, what, what the significance of that word for is. It, they translate it, here is why this will be so. Here's why this will be so. So the question is, why is this child born during this time and eating this diet? Well, this is why it's so. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So what is he saying here? He's saying, here's why he's eating this food. Because you guys have been decimated. You've been destroyed. Ahaz, Israel is going to be gone. And your land is going to be decimated. And so this child is eating this diet because you're gone. You're done. And then he comes on the scene. That's what he's really saying here. He's saying this child cannot come on the scene until your land is decimated. And that's what's going to be described in the, in the following verses. Because you trust in the king of Assyria, your salvation now comes from him. And a salvation from Assyria, well, it's not quite what Ahaz expected. The land is decimated. Todd Bolin writes this. He says, The invasion must occur before the boy's maturity, but the timing of his birth is nowhere indicated. The fact that he grows up eating curds and honey indicates that he is born after the land is laid waste. And then he says, in other words, Ahaz's refusal to trust transforms salvation into judgment. But for the house of David, all is not lost. For beyond judgment lies salvation. The virgin will give birth to Emmanuel. And so it's like, it's like a bigger promise for, for the house of David. Hey, I'm not forsaking the Davidic line. This child is coming. But you, Ahaz, what was offered salvation to you is now transformed into judgment. Why? Because your trust was in man and not in God. You didn't trust this child. And so it will be for anyone who does not trust in Emmanuel. It's a great point to say, do you trust in Emmanuel? Is he your trust? For Ahaz, the sign became bad news because it meant that by the time this child was born, the land of Israel and Judah would already have been destroyed, decimated. So, I like what one writer says to summarize. He says, all this must be kept in mind when many claim that the child promised in verse 14 must have been one who was somehow contemporary with Ahaz. But that's just Isaiah's point. Emmanuel has no relevance to Ahaz. Ahaz has chosen the king of Assyria instead. But Emmanuel will come in spite of Ahaz and his unbelief. But he will not come for Ahaz. 
So this is, the, this is the problem people have with this text. They go, well, the child, the sign has to have some relevance to Ahaz. It has to be born during the time of Ahaz or else it's not significant for him in any way. But that's the whole point of the passage. You rejected the sign. It's not for you, Ahaz. It's for the house of David. And so you're gonna get destroyed and yet this child is gonna come. The whole point of the passage is, is telling us that. And not only that, the whole context of Isaiah 1 to 12 is saying, guess what, Judah? There's gonna be a time when you guys are gonna be decimated. The tree is chopped down, but out of that, out of that stump, a root is gonna grow up. It's already preparing you for this time when you guys are gonna be decimated, uh, torn down, but later in the future, this coming child will come. The holy seed is its stump. And so he's already prepared us for that, and now he he gives this prophecy of this coming Messiah, but he won't come until after Israel and Judah are decimated. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Just to summarize in this last point, the consequences of unbelief, we read these verses in 18 to to 25, which really describe the conditions of the land. Uh, They're dire conditions. Each of there's four stanzas, and they each start with in that day. Verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, verse 23. The real message here is what happens when you trust in something other than Yahweh? The answer is it destroys you in the end. That which you put your security in, that's what you seek satisfaction from in an ultimate sense, other than Yahweh, other than the Son, the Lord Jesus, becomes the means of your destruction. It destroys you in the end, and that's exactly what happened. Ahaz trusted the king of Assyria, and that's who he got, the king of Assyria, who ended up destroying him. Ahaz found contemporary relief from trusting in Assyria, a false object of trust, but he got eventual destruction from that false object of trust. Your possessions will fail you, your power will fail you, your pleasures will fail you, your prominence will fail you, but the Emmanuel child will never fail you, and your trust in him will secure for you everlasting redemption. Only trust in Emmanuel and his promise will not fail you. And so we see the, the condemnation here, the consequences of unbelief in the life of Ahaz. This is the chapter. This is Isaiah 7. How incredible. The call to faith, the condescension of faith, the Christ of faith, and then the consequences of unbelief. I mean, what a glorious chapter to set this diamond of Isaiah 7:14 within. But, but I want to point you to one last stop on, <laughs> on the train here and go to Matthew chapter 1 where this is quoted. We'll land the plane here in Matthew 1, and we'll call this the cost of trust. The cost of trust. What you have, starting in verse 18, is a number of comparisons, and then we see some contrasts as well. First, we have another crisis moment. Another crisis moment, just like for Ahaz. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I would say this is somewhat of a crisis moment for Joseph. (laughs) He's engaged, uh, they may have not even spent much time together before this. Uh, and he finds out she's pregnant. Oh, what devastation. What crisis this would have been. Ahaz, 
Time of crisis. Two kings coming at you. Trying to remove you from the throne. Trying to destroy your kingdom. Second, we see another comparison. We have another son of David. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Ahaz, son of David. Joseph, son of David. The promise made to the house of David. And so we have another comparison between these two. Third, in view of the crisis, we have another call and a call not to be afraid. Verse 20 continues, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Ahaz, don't be shaken in the wind like a tree. Don't be afraid. Trust the word of Yahweh. Same thing here. Don't be afraid. Trust. And then he gives him content to trust in. Content given as the basis for faith. Same as for Ahaz. Verse 20, or verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so, content given, and here's the great content. It's the same sign, the same sign. Yet, here we see a contrast. Here's the contrast between Ahaz and Joseph. While Ahaz refused to trust Yod's word, Joseph humbly receives God's word in this difficult time. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And so he trusts. He trusts in the Emmanuel promise. And it becomes for him good news. Whereas for Ahaz, Christmas was bad news. Same situation though. Same, so many connections and yet a difference here. Now you think, okay, I've just got a question, Robert. His name is supposed to be Emmanuel, but they called him Jesus. What, what's the deal? I mean, didn't, I mean, didn't he hear this? Like, why didn't he call him Emmanuel? Like when he got to the, you know, the, the clerk's office and, oh, what's the child's name? Uh, his name's Emmanuel. It's like, no, they say Jesus. And their names are not, you know, Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. It's, that's his title, right? But we understand that, that there's titles, many titles. In fact, in Isaiah 7 to 12, there's a lot of different titles that are given to the Messiah. A name describes one's character. And that's what we have in Isaiah 7 to 12 and other places, that there's all these names that describe this Messiah. He's the branch. He's the root, right? He's the righteous one. And there are so many of these, and yet he's given his personal name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. George, George Herman Ruth was the name on his birth certificate, yet he was known by many different titles. The Babe, the Great Bambino, the Sultan of, Sw of Swat, the Colossus of Clout, right? We understand these titles speak to his character. And so it is for the Emmanuel child. Yes, his name is Jesus, but he is God with us. He is the God-man, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, God our righteousness, and Emmanuel, God with us. But we must remember that this decision of Joseph's to trust came to him at great cost. Came to him at great cost. Consider the cost it would have come 
for him to, the cost of faith for his reputation in the community, for his business, for his relationships, for his family. In fact, in the passage we read about the inn, which is probably better guest room, it's likely this is like a family member that they come to and they're refused entrance. You can't stay here, Joseph. Not probably because there wasn't enough room, but because we don't have room for your kind here. Probably is the better idea because of the scandal of the virgin conception. And later, it's still hanging on in in Jesus' ministry. When he's talking with the Pharisees, they say, we're not bastards like you are. And that's what they would say about him. We were not born of fornication. And that's what he had to deal with. That was the cost that it came for Joseph to trust this promise. And yet it would change everything for his life. And it was good news for him. Jesus would later tell his followers to count the cost of faith. Count the cost. There will be a cost that comes with trusting Emmanuel. Yet where else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. And so in conclusion... There's no need to take Christ out of one of the most famous Christmas texts. No, he's perfectly placed there. This is the message of Isaiah 7. This prophecy refers to Messiah and him alone. And he alone can fulfill this passage and every other passage, both in the law and the prophets. He is the one who will bring all to completion. Everything in his first coming, everything in his second coming, to restore all things, to bring personal regeneration and cosmic restoration of all things because this child has come and he is God with us. He is qualified. He can do it. He is God with us. Is Christmas good news for you or bad news? I don't mean in a superficial way like you got the present you wanted. I mean, is the message of Emmanuel going to be good news for you because he is your trust, he is your hope, in both life and in death? Or is the message of Emmanuel going to be your judgment? Because your salvation is in man, and in the end, it will destroy you. Have your ears been opened to hear the message? Have your eyes been opened to see the value and worth of Emmanuel? Has your nose smelled the pleasing aroma of life that Emmanuel is? The only way for God to be with us is for God to become one of us, so that the God-man might die for us, so that God himself can be for us. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, our hearts are full, to think of this glorious passage, this glorious chapter, that sets for us in place such a great promise that you set in motion of this child who would be born of this child who would be a miraculous child, a child spared of the imputation of Adam's guilt, a child who would be God and man, who could sympathize with all of our weaknesses, who would bring your presence to us, who would be a mediator between God and man, who would bring the restoration of all things, who would fulfill all the covenants, who would rule and reign on the earth, who would purchase a people that you had given him, Father, and the Spirit would draw this one, this promised child who would be righteous and earn the righteousness we need and to pay for the guilt that we have by his obedience. Fill our hearts with great joy and great thoughts about you and your son and the glorious promise that you have fulfilled and all the promises yet to be fulfilled that are guaranteed by your son, Emmanuel.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.